So usually what happens in private labeling is it is just a small little formula change. Again, if you think about merchandise, the manufacturer who manufactures that t-shirt might manufacture hundreds of thousands of t-shirts a month, but one has Caterpillar branded on it, another one has somebody else's. That formula is just that different that you call it private labeling. Growing a business requires a holistic approach that extends beyond sales and marketing. This approach needs alignment among people, processes, and technologies. So if you're a business owner, operations, or finance leader looking to learn growth strategies from your peers and competitors, you're tuned into the right podcast. Welcome to the WBS Podcast, where scalable growth using business systems is our number one priority. Now, here is your host, Sam Gupta. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the WBS Podcast. I'm Sam Gupta, your host and principal consultant at independent ERP and digital transformation consulting firm Elevate IQ. What do you buy as a consumer? Do you think you buy a product, brand, marketing hype, trust, confidence, or perception of being better, superior, healthier, wealthier, or smarter? Well, one thing any marketer will tell you is that Product is the least important of all, especially in the world of e-commerce, where you can't touch and feel the product before buying. This is the very reason why private label dropshipping exists. It's the exact product you could purchase anywhere else, but you'll buy the private labeled product at a much higher price. But is that equally applicable in the B2B setting, where the buyer is slightly more educated, informed, experienced, and sophisticated. Also, what are the nuances of the private label strategies? How do you incorporate that as part of your business model? In today's episode, we invited a panel of cross-functional experts for a live interview on LinkedIn who brings significant expertise to discuss private label dropshipping. We also discussed the differences between the private label and regular dropshipping and the differences in the B2B versus B2C dropshipping. Finally, we discussed the strategies to accommodate dropshipping in the business model for e-commerce businesses and the MOQ and margin requirements for the business model. With that, let's get to the conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's show. And if you're joining for the first time, this is part of our e-commerce series for which we meet every Wednesday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern. We pick one topic related to e-commerce, and we always have an expert panel that is going to share their insights and wisdom. For today, we are going to be talking about the private label and dropshipping. It's going to be very exciting to discuss why you need to have that as part of your business model, whether you are talking about B2B or B2B. We are going to discuss all of that, but before that, we are going to start with everybody's intro. I am going to start with my intro. If you don't know me, I am Sam Gupta. I am principal at Elevate IQ. I've been leading uh, you know, ERP and e-commerce engagements for roughly 20-ish years. And uh, you know, private label is always going to be part of business model. So it's always fun to explore all of those scenarios. Elevate IQ is the independent ERP and digital transformation consulting firm. We help our clients. Uh, with the system selection, contract negotiation, enterprise architecture, system architecture, system integration, and the ERP implementation. 
on that note, I am going to move to Chris for her intro. Thank you, Sam. And uh, great to be here with everybody. Sam, I just can't believe that you have that much experience because you don't look old enough to have that much experience. I, every time you say it, I just can't believe it. <laughs> a lot of gel, okay? A lot of gray here. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm carrying all your grays over here. Well, I'm Chris Harrington, uh, the president and COO at Gen Alpha Technologies. We are a digital commerce company that partners with OEMs and aftermarket organizations to help them on their digital journey. This includes things like e-commerce, RMA, warranty, product configurators, and other digital solutions that they might be uh, utilizing to improve the customer experience. So, so great to be here with everyone. Thank you. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for being here, Chris. Andrew, can I move to you next uh, for your intro joining for the first time? Sure. I'm Andrew Deutsch. I'm, I'm an executive with a company called Smart Soda and also have for many years been been the CEO of, of a consulting group called the Fangle Group, global global marketing and sales. We've been work we work in about 120 different countries, helping companies uh, expand their their global footprint. Uh, my my work with with Smart Soda is, has become sort of separate. My Fangle Group is is operating on its own without its CEO <laughs> at the moment because I'm fully embedded and and working taking Smart Soda to the global market. Um, we're finally a alternative, a healthy alternative to all of the nasty stuff that people put in their bodies that they think tastes good. So it's a it's a fascinating journey that I've been on with these guys too. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for being here, Andrew. Noemi, can I ask you next to introduce yourself? Uh, yes, thanks, Sam. So uh, 10 years ago, I got into the industrial water sector and I founded a company um, for the distribution of aftermarket products in the water industrial sector. And that's when I actually firsthand experienced a lot of the manual processes, all the siloed communications and a highly fragmented supplier base. So that inspired me to launch uh, the industrial marketplace AquaQuote for the water industry as well. In that marketplace, uh, we've offered 250,000 SKUs specifically through a dropship strategy. And uh, my latest venture is Monitor where we have aftermarket team, help aftermarket teams in manufacturing, turn low-value offline parts sales into scalable recurring revenue streams. So thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for being here, Noemi. Steve, can I ask you to introduce yourself next? Thanks, and it's good to be here with Andrew, Noemi, and Chris, and you, Sam. Uh, thanks for having us all. My name is Steve Rice. I'm the founder of Dotcom Jungle, OSR Consulting, and the Globally Conscious Leader. Too many things going on uh, in my life, but with Dotcom Jungle, for the most part, that's why I'm here, and we help make uh, help we help manufacturers make and implement wise technology choices. Uh, and I've been doing that for over 20 years, um, and I have a bunch of experience actually working with some uh, supplement companies who have done some white label manufacturing and even owned a third of one for a while. So um, it is something that I have done and helped with. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for being here, Steve. And before we start on today's topic, if you are in the audience and joining for the first time. We typically look at the comments and questions. So if you have any comments or questions that you would like us to address, uh, we are going to review all of those. If we cannot get to them during the show, we'll make sure that you get your responses. Our panelists are going to make sure that you, you, you get them. On that note, I am going to start with the first question with you, Chris. And that is going to be, I don't know how many people really understand what private label dropshipping means and how it differs from your regular dropshipping 
do you want us at this stage in terms of what is the difference uh, between those two sure so i guess to first maybe just uh use some big brands i think we would all be familiar with that could maybe help us set the stage for what we're talking about when we talk about private labeling dropship if we think about companies like caterpillar these are big names big brands john deere a harley davidson right and we think about their merch um you know the merchandise that they sell so uh, caterpillar has a workwear gear and some work boots uh really what you're talking about here is a third party manufacturer who is helping to manufacture goods that are going to be supplied uh, directly to your customers it can be your customers your distributors so again if you think about Harley Davidson and all of Harvey, Harley Davidson's gear and accessories often they are not manufacturing those items they are focused on the manufacturing of the motorcycles right and that goes through their plants and their inventory operations would be more the products that Harley manufactures but they will work with third party manufacturers to create these additional product lines that will generate revenue for them and often they're able to do this because their brand is so highly recognized that it does become this additional source of uh, revenue for them customers want their products they want to wear their products they want to own their products and they leverage their brand to uh you know to to deliver these other uh products i think about john deere and i think about john deere toys and how uh the the that toy business has really taken off for them kids love especially uh farming children who are in that egg business they just love to have a john deere toy well john deere doesn't manufacture those goods often they're they're manufactured and private labeled for john deere and either john deere will inventory them depending on their their process or they'll have them drop shipped from that manufacturer to the different uh distributors who might be purchasing their products so uh hopefully that gives you just a real good foundation of some of the type of companies and brands and the, you know the different ways that we can think about drop shipping type products with that private label component yeah very interesting flavor there to be honest and and that's a great start because you know i was thinking okay how is the private label going to be applicable to b2b so the follow up question that i'm going to have for you is obviously the merch is probably going to be a change money uh, for these brands i mean that's not their core business model uh, obviously they are doing that just to build the community just to build the momentum just to promote their brand but obviously their overarching goal is going to be to sell that big giant machinery so that they can all meet their numbers uh, right so do you see uh, the private labeling only in case of merch or have you seen any other scenarios where let's say they are selling either the aftermarket components uh, or anything else in the private label setting absolutely there is other private labeled uh, components to their their products so with any large manufacturers again if we talk about the caterpillars the john deeres the harley davidsons of the world they purchase a lot of products from suppliers and then build that into their uh the the whole good that they're selling. Uh I've seen private labels for sealants, for lubrication, for hydraulics, for pumping systems, actually for many types of of systems. So it's not uncommon for them to work with uh, again 
another manufacturer or supplier, give them the parameters of what they need, or maybe work with that supplier to help with a special lubrication or a special grease that might be needed for their product. And then they private label it under their brand and sell it as their own. So uh, absolutely, it will be much broader than merch. But I, I thought merch would be something people could connect to. Either. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much uh, for that, Chris. Andrew, I'm actually going to come to you. And obviously, when you look at okay, the private label business model, the most applicable scenario is obviously going to be in the case of uh, because that's where the real play is. When we look at different startups right now, I don't know how many startups really manufacture uh, their own products. They are really the marketing company uh, in my eyes a lot of times. Um, so when you compare the advantages and the benefits of the private uh, label dropshipping versus the regular dropshipping, you can do both. So what have you seen and what are the differences that you have seen in B2B versus b I don't know if you're going to have any comments on B2B. Yeah. But I would in, the, in, the, in the B2B market, which is really where, where most of my career has been in the industrial space, so many manufacturers that I've worked with over the years produce into a box with a generic label and they will yeah. either swap the label, inkjet, or otherwise the package to, to the client who is shipping to, especially when you manufacture, for example, in the packaging industry, when I was working with plastic strapping. You would sell to end users. You would also sell to competitors with products that they couldn't produce, and you would sell through distribution. So a distributor wouldn't want the customer to know the specific part numbers that they could shop somewhere else. Uh, in the consumer space, one of my favorites years ago, uh, we, we opened the Brazilian market to the, the American mattress industry. And in the U.S., you can every, every advertiser out there who's advertising mattress matters, whatever the store is, that you can price shop anywhere, and if you can find a better price, it, uh, it you know it will be it will be met with a discount. But in that industry, every store has their own names and their own serial numbers for exactly the same product. So there there's lots of ways within the consumer space that it happens. But um, you know, in in the world of of food packaging, uh, Coke, Pepsi, all of the different the different major players as well as the the smaller players uh, tend to manufacture their syrups in the same exact facilities as everyone else. The only difference is the recipe. And, and it becomes, you know, the, the private label also becomes the co-packing world. So there, there's so many different ways that, that these things can happen. The beauty of it for a startup, for a small company, is you don't have to have any inventory. If you, if you properly make these arrangements, you can go online, you can sell your products uh, out in the market. And, and not only is the company who's doing your private label process, co-packing, manufacturing, whatever, whatever term you want to give it, they're also your shipper and your, your fulfillment agents. Um, and many of these companies that do that also have their own distribution networks with nationwide warehouses so that you can lower your, your freight. And there's so many other aspects to it. Um, many, many people that I've seen in, in the startup world uh, have what looks like major manufacturing facilities. And the reality is they have a, an office in a, in a think tank somewhere in a shared workspace. And uh, they're able to do massive business without ever buying a single piece of manufacturing equipment. So very interesting. And there are a lot of different layers to that discussion. And we can take several different directions. Uh, but the direction that I would like to take here is going to be really, I don't know how many people are going to be familiar with the differences. I know that you are saying these are really different terms when you look at the private label versus co-packing. But since you have so much yeah. uh, you know, deep background from the operations perspective, so let's say if I am the e-commerce uh, or the, the manufacturer and I am trying to understand 
what is going to be the operational differences in these two processes when we look at the private label versus co-packing? Do you want to uh, paint some more colors there? Well, I mean, again, it's a, it's a matter of splitting hairs with terminology, but uh, in, in, the, in the industrial packaging world, adhesive tapes, all, all of the materials, envelopes, boxes, all of that stuff is, is mostly private label, and you wouldn't know who the actual manufacturer is. Um, we did work in the HVAC space years ago, and no, no HVAC company making industrial or commercial or consumer actually makes their own filters, but they have them available and they're, and they're private label packed and shipped as if they're the manufacturer. In the tool industry, um, I did work with a company years ago in, in Illinois, helping them set up their South American distribution. They manufactured all of their tools in their own name, as well as 19, 20 other brands. And the only difference was when they put handles, they used different colors and change the change the box. So it's it you know many many times uh, even at the even at the supermarket level when you buy generic cake mix it probably was made in the same places uh, where they're making the other brand. The reason it's less expensive and and private labeled is because you you know when you're buying that you're paying thirty percent of the price is the advertising and if that manufacturer's not having to do the advertising they can afford to sell it cheap and 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 many times the decision at the at the industrial level is how do I maximize my capacity and utilize the total capacity of manufacturing if i can produce x number of of units a year but i can only sell y how do i feel the difference well i can private label for others okay amazing insights there thank you so much andrew for that uh noemi i am actually going to come to you uh so you know from your experience what have you seen when you compare the differences between your regular drop shipping versus the private label drop shipping uh, and b2b versus b2c what have you seen um, sure, Sam. So in our business, um, we are doing mainly industrial products and industrial parts, and we are dealing with a lot of different brands. And what we've seen, especially lately in the last few years, is that customers are have been really switching to the private label brands a lot more, uh, especially due to the supply chain disruptions that we've been seeing. Um, you know, average of 24 week lead time is, is not an, has not been that uncommon in my sector. And so a lot of that has caused switching temporarily, at least to these private label brands. And, and I think what's really important to know that these private label brands, um, you know, will, the question is, will they, the customers stay loyal, stay loyal to these brands or is it just short term? So I think one of the, the important thing that can be done for these private label brands is to create a way for the brand strategy to be able to, for customers to be able to see them as, um, as a perceived brand that is really a quality brand. Because sometimes uh, private label brands tend to have a uh, perception that it's maybe not as high quality because it's a lower cost. So, I think that would be an important part. And regarding, Sam, your question of what is the difference between uh, private label dropshipping and regular dropshipping, right? Yeah. Um, so I um, so very often the supplier distributor will want to keep inventory of the private label dropshipping if it is in their name. Um, and often the times they have virtual warehouses where they are really shipping these dropship items from. And uh, I mean, often I believe there is not much of a difference in in the shipping strategy that I have seen. 
Um, except some of these private label brands are not as open to dropship for you. So then you have to keep the inventory yourself. Very interesting. So you dropped a very interesting term there called virtual warehouse. And I don't know how many people are going to be familiar with what a virtual warehouse is. So do you want to describe that from the process perspective? Okay, where virtual warehouse fits into the overall strategy and why do these e-commerce companies or manufacturers are going to require a virtual warehouse and how that is going to help with the private labeling as well as dropshipping? Absolutely. So a virtual warehouse um, in my industry is a partner warehouses of other stocking distributors and manufacturers that are shipping and fulfilling orders on, on the behalf of the distributor. And I'll give you an example. Um, a few years ago, we had we got a really frantic phone call from a customer we'll call John, right? So we get a very frantic phone call. He says, um, my product, the filters that he's been using in manufacturing agricultural products has completely been destroyed and the plant was completely down. And he said every single hour he was down, it was $50,000 an hour of lost revenue. So he have called everybody. He went on Google. And of course, that's where product searches start, especially in really fragmented industries, right, where you don't have visibility of inventory information that's aggregated. So he, um, he called us. Because of our partnerships with virtual warehouses all over, we were able to really quickly check that product, which was not a common product, find it at one of the warehouses. And within an hour, we had a shipping logistics company begin to ship it to him, which arrived the next day. And, you know, nevertheless, that's a loyal customer after that, right? When you have access to that much um, inventory information across uh, multiple location, that's sometimes the closest proximity to the customer. But sometimes they're just products that are not often on the shelf. And you may find a distributor that's trying to turn that um, product over, right? And you wouldn't find it unless you had that partnership with them. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for those insights, Noemi. So Steve, I'm actually coming to you. And uh, the question is going to be the differences between the regular dropshipping versus the private label dropshipping in your industry. I don't know if, uh, if you are going to notice any other differences that these guys have already stated and the difference between B2B and B2C. Well, the, the main difference is if you're drop if you're just drop shipping, you're drop shipping somebody else's product and you've got they've given you permission to do it, right? Uh, if you're white labeling, you could be going direct to consumer and you could be going B2B. The main difference between a direct to consumer model, I think, and a B2B model is whether you're able to hit the MOQs, the minimum order quantities for B2B shipments. And um, you know, the we I don't I'm not sure we can have this conversation without talking about Amazon because I think the advent of Amazon has brought this concept and this idea into stark contrast because um, there's a ton of people competing for brands and products uh, to sell on Amazon. And some of them are vendor central and some of them are seller central. Um, but it's because of that, there are a lot of private label, uh, sorry, private white labeling uh, third party companies that have popped up in support of that idea. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is large percentage of the vitamins that you actually see online, they're not um, special. <laughs> Just to, I don't mean to, to minimize uh, the effectiveness of vitamins, but a lot of the you know, 2000 milligram vitamin D, it's, 
if it's not from now brand or a brand that you've known since you were a kid, it was probably white labeled in like one of five factories in Georgia, California. Um, and uh, so that's an industry where you'll see a lot of private labeling, but it'll all, you also have some MOQs involved and, and, you know, you can go as low as two dozen, uh, but your margin is going to be uh, almost nothing. Um, whereas, uh, you know, if you, if you actually come up with a formulation yourself, you might be working with the same factory uh, and you'll have something special. You can get a higher margin from it because you actually made it up and worked with their chemists to, to, to make it. But then your MOQs are probably going to be 600 to 6,000. So those would be the main differences, really the MOQs and who you're dropshipping it. Okay, very interesting. So since you mentioned the Amazon comment, that comment is probably going to be applicable in the traditional world as well. So let's say if I'm looking at vitamin, you said that, you know, if I pick five bottles, you know, they probably are going to be, the only difference is probably going to be packaging. Now, if I go to Walmart and if I look at great value brand, I don't know how comfortable you are going to feel in picking that, uh, but based on your comment, is the quality going to be same? Uh, in the great value versus some of the other products that are going to be sitting on the shelf? Or uh, <laughs> do, you, do you have any any commentary there by any chance? You know, I don't, <laughs> I, I'm going to say, I'm going to answer that a couple ways. One, I don't really. Okay. Two, I have people who work in the medical, like family members who work in the medical field. And I've asked them kind of like that same question about like ibuprofen. Do I need to pay for <laughs> generic or regular? And they say it's the same thing. Chemically, it's the same thing. The the third answer, though, is if you're, so you might get vitamin, let's see, think about fish oil. Yeah. Um, some fish oil, if, if it's not tested properly and you don't know where it came from, could have high levels of mercury in it. And so you may actually want to be looking for a label for something that's maybe hand pressed in Norway, to give an example. Uh, and also third-party tested for detection of mercury or something like that. So there there are ways to check it out. Andrew, you have a comment? Go ahead, please. Yeah. You know, over the years, I've, I've been involved in situations, for example, in the strapping industry, where I would go out to talk to a potential new customer in, in another country. And they would say to me, you know, we, we, we don't like the product that we're getting today. The, 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 it doesn't work for us. That's why we're reaching out to you and we'll go out and we'll get the coils of material and they were private labeled by us. And ours works better than ours because it, ours has the, the corporate name and the other one was some distributor that they bought from. So their uh, perception, perception has a lot, a lot to do with it. Years ago, I was involved with a company that was manufacturing uh, hand tools for the DIY market. And when they were selling the exact same drill to Walmart, who insisted that every year they had to reduce cost, there would be a certain percentage less wines in the motor to save on copper. And the model number was identical. The serial number would tell you whether it was a Walmart product or a non-Walmart product. Um, it's not really necessarily within within the realm, but we're talking about it was, a, it was a, a national brand. But depending on where they sold that same SKU, it had different components. It had a slightly cheaper plastic and, and less wines. So the the whether or not what you're getting with a private label, you know, or white label, whatever we want to call it, there, there, there typically is no difference, uh, but you really can't tell until you've, you've tested the product and whether it's it's under the same standard. Okay, amazing insights there. Thank you so much, uh, Andrew, for that. So the next segment is going to be really into the strategy. And the strategy, yes, the perception is is going to be there. We all agree that, you know, the branding matters. I think Chris man mentioned that, you know what, uh, if you are going to have even your merch, uh, that plays a big difference overall in the perception of the brand and that is the sort of the branding in any case even if the underlying product is probably going to be similar or same exact same e even after that i think there is a little 
you know, leverage their overall from the branding perspective. Because when I look at two products, I mean, th- those two products are exact same, but if one has better branding, uh, you know, I feel far more comfortable buying that because it's not just the product itself, not just the functioning of the product. It's also the branding and marketing and, and you need to hang out with your friends and you need to show them that you are buying a decent product, to be honest, okay? Uh, so the logo matters. Uh, you know, we can all agree with that. Now, the strategy question is going to be that when we look at the operational accommodation in the business model, when you are accommodating, let's say, the private label strategy in your business model, you need to think about a lot of different things. And that is going to be your MOQs. That is going to be your margins. That is going to be your virtual warehouse. You need to have all of that in consideration when you are setting this up. So, Chris, let's say if I am the manufacturer or the e-commerce merchant who's trying to bring the private label into my business model. I've never sold uh, in the private label business model before. So what are some of the things that I need to keep in mind to accommodate that? Yeah, I think certainly I think the biggest component with if you're going to do private labeling and drop shipping is that you're responsible for the marketing and sales of whatever it is that, you know, because you're no you're not manufacturing it and you're not inventorying it. So you you have that part of your cost of goods sold is not there. The, the strategy that you really need to focus on is how are you going to attract customers to this product? And so your selling strategy and your advertising costs are something you're going to be paying uh, close attention to. I think the reason why private labeling and drop shipping uh, has become so popular is because how easy it is to roll out an e-commerce site today, right? So, yep. you know, I can be a thought leader in a space and add a shopping cart to my website today to sell third-party products and make additional revenue. So if I think about I've mentioned on this program before that we have two girls in a farm. So we grow vegetables, we have chickens, we have compost. We So if we wrote about this and we told our story and we wanted to sell some products that we didn't manufacture here on our farm, but we wanted to start, sell gardening supplies and uh, maybe compost uh, solutions and other things that other people are already manufacturing, but we might be able to put the two girls in a farm label on. So there's some packaging cost to that. It, you know, our ability to sell that would really depend on how we've built our audience, how we've created our brand and how we've uh, come to attract people. I really think that's how this uh, private labeling has be- and, and uh, drop shipping has become such a relevant uh, topic today because it's a lower cost to entry for me to sell products to get an additional revenue stream. So that's something that whole model is something that's really taking off. If we look at your traditional businesses like the original equipment manufacturers who are selling whole goods and servicing them on the aftermarket side, they also have traditionally had private labeling strategies. This this strategy has been around for a long time. And really, it's because they want more market potential for the aftermarket products that go into the equipment that they've manufactured. So these equipment manufacturers are the engineers of the whole good. 
they engineer, they work with suppliers to determine what is going to create the best production of that machine. And now they want you to come back to them for all of the aftermarket components. And that's why you'll see things like Caterpillar filters. That's why you'll see thing, you know, Caterpillar branded filters that will be in the, the dealers for Caterpillars all around the world. You'll see these these big brand components because they have found ways to increase their market uh, potential to, to get that larger revenue stream. So I think what the strategies are really, where do you have an opportunity? And, and it's going to depend on if you're a small B2C business, like the two girls in a farm I was describing, is there a, uh, an additional revenue stream that you can get, get by selling other manufactured products? So you, you put a shopping cart on your site and you, you create that opportunity and through your thought leadership, people want to buy from you. Or are you this large equipment manufacturer who has brought these, these products into your whole goods and now you're going to private label so that anybody who owns and operates your equipment comes back to you for all of those components, not goes out searching for the original equipment manufacturer of that filter or that pump or that gear case or that what whatever component. So uh, it's really determining which suppliers will enable you to do that as well. When you're a big a company like Caterpillar, they have large purchasing power. And if somebody if if Caterpillar defines a vendor as their preferred supplier, that supplier is going to be very happy that Caterpillar has chosen them. And, and often they're going to want to private label for Caterpillar because they want Caterpillar's business because of the brand. Now, if you're less known brand and you don't manufacture as much product as, say, a Caterpillar, you may not have the same purchasing power or the same ability to get the private label from that original manufacturer that, that the larger one does. So the strategy is identifying where you have some leverage to go back to your supplier network to find those opportunities for private labeling. Because typically there's an additional cost to private labeling versus uh, just buying and selling the, the original uh, manufactured product. So those are some thoughts there, Sam. So very interesting commentary. And I think we are going to touch a little bit more on the cost side of the equation. I think that's where the track is. So, uh, you know, I believe somebody mentioned, I don't know whether yeah. you mentioned this, uh, that as the private level company, if I am relying on somebody else to manufacture, to inventory, to ship, uh, then pretty much everything is done by them. The only thing I'm doing really is the system marketing, but they need to have the enough margins to be able to deliver this good. And if they are doing everything, I don't know who's going to have the cloud and control in the equation. If you are somebody like Caterpillar, I don't know how many companies can afford to really match with Caterpillar, to be honest. But let's say if they both are pretty much at the same level. So who typically controls the, the buying cycle? Let's say if the manufacturer is, let's say, equally big uh, and the supplier is equally big, do you see any scenarios where you might see that, okay, a company started at the private level, but then they started promoting their own brand because they just want to, they had more power in the equation. Yeah, I think it's going to depend on um, how many how many revenue streams that other manufacturer has. So uh, if, if they're selling exclusively to Caterpillar for those products and Caterpillar gets all of the business, then it better be larger than what that manufacturer can do widely 
on their own without a caterpillar, right? So in that scenario, that's what it would depend on, the demand for the product overall. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much, Chris, for that. So, Andrew, I'm actually coming to you. So, when you look at the accommodating this in the business model, you know, what are some of the considerations that you have seen when these companies are going to determine the the MOQ? And I think MOQ is going to be applicable, uh, you know, in both cases. It's going to be for manufacturer as well as for supplier and the margins as well. You know, uh, uh, aligning with what Chris was saying, at the end of the day, most of us recognize that our most valuable asset as a business are our customers. So, If I have customers who are currently buying A, B, C, and D from me, they know me, they trust me, and there are products that that I know that they need and can get from me, but I don't have the capability of manufacturing, I don't have the capability of stocking, inventorying, all of those things. If I'm in that position, this is a process that's golden for me because I can have a line of additional 30 items that my customer will buy that I can make a profit from and make them happy with that product because they know they're getting it from someone who's going to stand behind it. Now, if I'm a manufacturer of products uh, in, in this food industry, uh, I, I could be on 300 websites selling my product through them with my brand. And many of those websites might say to me, you know what, we, we also want a private label version of it. Uh, and we could stock both with just literally changing the label on the box. Yeah. So it depends on whether you're on the manufacturing side or the selling side uh, as to what your strategy is going to be. But at the end of the day, uh, as long as you know that somebody can reliably make something that will satisfy your customer and and broaden your line, the the strategy is pretty clear and easy to easy to contemplate in terms of how you're going to go forward. Okay, so we are going to add one more layer to this discussion, and that is going to be channel conflict. You know, that is always something that we always are trying to bring in. And in this particular case, when you are saying that, you know what? I am trying to sell to 300 different retailers. And some of the uh, problems that I am seeing in the market, let's say if you are a B2B product, uh, in this particular case, when you are, let's say, supplying to many different uh, suppliers, I don't know who is going to be responsible for warranty. And typically, that's going to be the manufacturer who is going to be supporting, let's say, if you are selling grills. Uh, you know, it's not going to be your suppliers who can really support the grill because it has to go to manufacturer. And as soon as it goes to the manufacturer, then manufacturer sort of takes over the, the control uh, in terms of, you know, their ability to be able to sell to these customers. So in terms of channel conflict, when you look at the, the control, when you are selling through all of these different channels, everybody sort of has everybody's email address and you can technically market with them. So what would be your recommendation when you are talking about the channel conflict and the control when you are operating in the private label dropshipping mode? Yeah, well, first, I'm not an attorney, so I don't want to get into the product liability side of it because uh, I'll end up saying something that will be wrong and, you know, we're not going to go there. But in terms of the channel conflict, if you're the manufacturer and, and, and items are out there being sold either cheaper than what you do or into markets that, that conflict with yours, that's something that has to be pre-negotiated with the folks that you're working with or seen as an advantage that your product is being sold. I, I equate it to middle school uh, elections for, for class pre- your class president. If you want a female to be class president, what do you do? You nominate four boys and a girl. And guess what? This, the vote split between the boys and the girl gets it. So if if you're looking at the market and there's other competitors out there who, who could take that customer and produce that white label product or the, the private label product for them, and you let them grow their business, Basically, you know, what do, what's the, what do they say? I'm trying to think in English um, to, 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 to raise a cobra to, to bite you. 
why wouldn't you pick up and, and do that business? Because at the end of the day, you're you're selling it at a lower price, but you're also not using your your total marketing and marketing cost and and everything else in it. So your margins can actually be better selling it for less through through those channels. There's a whole bunch of layers, and it really situational uh, as to how how you want to address that question. I, I, I'm going to stop because I see wants to say something. Go ahead, Steve. Well, I I have a story along those lines. We're talking about well, you know, the whole business aspects of this. There there is a very successful and very profitable supplements company in Southern California who I won't name, whose business model is to white label uh, and they do it very well. Um, and their goal is, uh, you know, as uh, Andrew mentioned earlier, is to maximize the capacity of the facilities that they're running. Because um, at some point they're, they're breaking even and they just want it to be full the whole time. And what they do though, is they they find they, they white label for a lot of people. And, and let's be clear, most white labeling companies, uh, you know, for those of you out there who are like, I'm going to go white label right away, they fail because uh, they don't have branding. Um, I mean, there's, there's a large volume of companies out there who are taking advantage of, for to put it sort of in a negative way, all the young consumers and people who just came out of, I don't know, college or high school and think they know how to sell something. Um, but uh, in, in this case, so they're, they're finding the people who are, are successful. Uh, I actually worked with one of those who was the, it might still be the largest retailer of vitamin D and weight loss supplements on Amazon for years and years. And the company that made all their products was basically selling them to them at, you know, roughly 30 margin. And after a while, you can look at the math and say, well, we can get a 70 margin if we buy this company and sell directly ourselves because we already have the infrastructure here, we're already doing it. And so for them to actually pop out with a, a, a couple million, 10 million, 50 million to buy a supplements company that they're already providing, uh, selling $20 million worth of stuff to, it'll pay for itself within 18 months. <laughs> so there's a, there is a whole business model around that from the other end of manufacturing and white label dropshipping because they're just looking for businesses that can give them more market share. Okay, amazing. Uh, Andrew, I don't know if you're going to have any follow-up comments. Yeah, there. you know, when years ago, I was working with a, a company overseas that manufactured welding equipment. And there were 40 retailers in the U.S. selling the exact same piece of equipment with a different colored case in a different brand. Um, and and again, you, you would read the reviews that were out there and certain of them were horribly made. They were they, they didn't work and others were these were the best ones and this is the company you can trust. Um, and at the end, it I think three out of the 12 that were doing it survived and became very profitable businesses until the company overseas that made the welding equipment set up their own business in the U.S. and, and took it over. So in, in that case, the strategy for the manufacturer was let's let's let these people spend the marketing dollars to give validity to our new type of welding machinery and grow the business selling it all white labeled. And then as soon as the market was penetrated and people recognized that this was a new way of doing things, thank you for spending your money, now it's ours. Um, which to me isn't the most ethical way to go to market, but but yet another one of the strategies that this white labeling process can, can lead to. Okay, amazing, thank you so much, Andrew, for that. So Noemi, I'm actually gonna come to you. Uh, and uh, we are looking at uh, the business model and uh, the margin, the MOQ, uh, but I am probably going to get, uh, you know, some more insights on Steve's comment where he mentioned that, you know what, if you are going to be a startup, there are a lot of different startups that typically fail with this strategy. So what are some of the core reasons that you have seen? Do Are they going to be off 
with their margins, MOQ, or the branding itself does not work, or they are not able to sell. So why does the strategy not work for the companies that may not have as much experience with private labeling? That's a great question. And I'll follow up with um, Chris mentioned and Steve mentioned on the barrier has really lowered, you know, for people to become white label and drop shippers lately. And because of all these technological changes and everybody can set up a website really easily. Um, what's really important really around the strategy is what type of relationships do you have with your suppliers, right? And really setting up those relationships and making sure that those terms and conditions around shipping, uh, shipping times, how quickly can they deliver the product, um, and and all of those KPIs when working with these uh, partners have to be matched. I think a really great strategy um, for companies to consider when uh, considering um, private label is let them identify all of the product categories that they are currently selling and do some either customer surveys or uh, KPIs on what are the products that are have the highest margin, what are the products that are most demanded but not available from the current product um, portfolio, and then what are some maybe underserved markets as well as complementary products to the current offerings. So I think coming from that perspective, companies can really find the right product to bring in and um, set up the right margins. And often, you know, the margins are going to be, um, like you said, if it's coming through a channel conflict, um, the distributor will have to agree with the manufacturer. If that price is going to be um, able to be put online, right, because sometimes the prices are due to the channel conflict are not able to be posted online. So what I what I would recommend, you know, for maybe for startups or or companies that are new to private label strategies is to create, um, you know, um, really get the offering in place, try to create a, a really great product portfolio that offers the customers this one stop shop, as well as um, really great ROIs and margins. Okay, very interesting. And you have actually brought up a very interesting layer that nobody has spoken so far, and that is going to be pricing. When you are working on pricing related to private label, and when you are going to be setting up all of these contracts and the agreements with your suppliers, they are sort of going to know at what price you are selling and what you are paying to them. So there is a little too much transparency, I would say, you know, for the distributors, and they are probably going to have a lot of clout in that equation that, you know, they probably want to keep more. So from your experience, what have you seen in terms of when you are setting those agreements? Uh, are you going to be open about the price? Because you have to be open about the price. And then you are going to be transparent about the markets as well. So have you seen any strategies where you can probably manage these negotiations, even though they know pretty much everything? Uh, yeah, you know, and that's one of the reasons why distributors are and manufacturers don't want to post prices online. It's for this very reason. That's why distributor storefronts are so popular because it really prevents that channel conflict because every distributor really treats their customers as that is my customer, that is not my manufacturer's customer, right? So they want that ownership and that confidentiality between their own customers. So 
that's one way to handle channel conflict is really not to publish pricing online, but to keep it private for each customer. That's a strategy. And what I've seen also work well is when prices are um, posted online, um, either posting a range or agreeing with the manufacturer on what the price can be so that other channel partners are matching that price or um, not um, undercutting them, their other channel partners. Very interesting. Thank you so much, uh, Noemi, for that. So, Steve, I'm actually going to come to you and I'm uh, going to build up all, you know, on, the, on the pricing argument itself. Uh, obviously, you can touch this more from the uh, business model perspective, if you like. But, you know, my question to you is going to be when you look at the order of operations, the way the transaction is going to flow in case of drop shipping, the supplier is actually going to get some sort of, you know, purchase order uh, or the order that you are actually supplying it to the end consumer. So they will probably know the pricing. I don't know, uh, you know, how many businesses can really afford to hide the pricing that suppliers will probably come to know the, the pricing. So have you seen any strategies in terms of, you know, hiding the prices versus disclosing the prices in your industry? Um, well, I haven't seen in terms of B2B drop shipping and, and true white labeling. I have not met a white labeling company who gives a rats, you know what, what you sell it for. They only care that uh, you meet their minimums and that they are keeping their facility uh, at capacity. Um, and frankly, you know, if you're going to be selling something that's exactly the same as somebody else's, you have to have some sort of added, added value. And often, uh, I think Andrew pointed out earlier, sometimes it's just perceived value. In fact, I think Sam, I think you said the same thing. Yes. Maybe, maybe we all said it. Um, but you know, so, so in the B2B world, um, it doesn't matter to the, to the manufacturer because they, they've got their price to you. You might be able to negotiate a different price. Um, if you've got uh, a lot of different formulations, like the, say the supplements industry, um, you know your MOQ per each one might be a thousand, but you might be able to negotiate that down because you've got 52 products instead of two. Um, so the other answer I would say about pricing uh, from the consumer standpoint is one of the one of the great reasons to do this is if you're really good at marketing, this is your opportunity, um, and you think you have a good idea you can use private label drop shipping to trade margin for market testing and it's expensive but that's one of the benefits of what we're what we're talking about here um the other is you can if you do have a custom formulation that's going to be brand specific to you you can start with a custom formulation and once again i'm just going to keep using supplements as an example then you can backfill with uh they call them generic but white label products to increase brand awareness or you can do it the other way around so uh, that's that's really why I think if, if you're going to get into white labeling, that's why you want to do it. Um, otherwise, I don't know. It can be a little bit. It's it's a little bit predatory out there um, in a certain way. People buying generics, relabeling them, branding them, and selling them as if they're to people that live in Beverly Hills <laughs> ten times, right? So I don't know. Yeah, very interesting. So maybe you want to touch your own comment, uh, you know, about companies feeling with the private label strategy. So from your experience, when these companies are going for private label, why do they fail? Or, or do they struggle with marketing? Do they struggle with demand? Or they just can't, uh, you know, do the math for the margin and, and MOQ? And that's where, so where do they fail? Uh, marketing and demand together. That basically their branding and marketing fails, and they they don't know how to get the product out there and put it, you know, in front of people who are going to actually buy it. 
I mean, it's, it's sort of that simple. It's it's a branding play, and if you can't do that, you don't belong in the in the industry. Okay, amazing. Uh, Andrew, uh, did you have a comment? Uh... One one of the other risks, in line with with what Steve's talking about, is that if if you're going to market with strictly private label things made by made by other folks, you're at the mercy of that manufacturer. So sorry, my my alarm clock is going off. <laughs> um, someone must be in the driveway. I'm sorry, but if you you know if you you go to market and you're going to come with with 10 SKUs from a manufacturer who's selling you their capacity and then they get really busy, uh, you're going to end up in a disaster because you're not going to be able to have product to fulfill your need because they're 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 selling you what's left. There's so many different ways that it can backfire. So if you don't know how to brand it, you don't know how to sell it, you don't know how to acquire customers, uh, and you're at the mercy of of some factory that's just currently selling their excess capacity, um, you, you've really set yourself up above a trapdoor. So there, there's a lot there's a lot to consider in that realm also. Okay, amazing insight there. I see uh, follow-up comments? Yeah, I think Andrew's at the mercy of his third-party white Labrador. <laughs> he's a very proud standard poodle, I'll have you. <laughs> it's, he's, uh, he's in charge of, of the alarm system in the house. It's white. It's a white labeled alarm service. Okay, guys. So we have some more time for any comments that you guys might have because uh, before we do our closing advice, Noemi, Chris, Steve, anybody has any comments? I, I think I, you know just to maybe contribute to some of the things that have been said here. Um, I think white labeling is highly competitive as compared to private labeling. So uh, you know maybe we should distinguish a little bit between the two. Because uh, we've been using them slightly interchangeably here, you know. Typically, white labeling means that there are many sellers for a similar product, right? And because you have that scenario, you are going to have lower margins, and you're going to have to pay attention to your pricing. In private labeling, usually somebody, the supplier, is building that formulation for you. So I'll use Steve's words, you know. So it's actually your product but manufactured by somebody else and private labeled for you so you get to set the price now you have to have a price at a level in which people are willing to pay but this is why i always like the merchandising strategy for large oems because they've already created this great brand right so they can go off and work with third-party manufacturers of these clothing lines and set the price for their products based on the willingness that people are willing to pay for the for wearing their goods, right? So that's just a, a, an interesting thing to think about as you're pricing your products. You have a lot more control if you're private labeling something. You also have a lot more risk because if you're the only one creating that good, you could have inventory left over, whether you're, you have the inventory or the supplier uh, that run ran that line for you has the inventory. Either way, you have to have inventory. Usually you're not manufacturing a one-off. You have to be able to sell it. So you have to know a little bit about your demand. And that's where the whole MOQ conversation comes in. So I thought I would just distinguish between the two because we were using them interchangeably here. And you are so right to be honest, and I'm actually going to give you a plug because, uh, you know, for Gen Alpha, when you look at the software industry, the way you would think about the white labeling versus the private labeling, white labeling is almost the opposite of the private labeling. Because in case of white labeling, what you are doing is, hey, Caterpillar, let's say if you want to use Gen Alpha, I'll put your logo, I'll, I'll put your branding. That is the white label ver version. But the private labeling is very different because I am actually trying to promote my brand. 
I don't know if this is similar in the commerce space as well. Uh, that's how I understood uh, of the white label versus. Well, kind of. I mean, it would have to be that, you know, if let's say if Gen Alpha was rolling out a site that was exactly the same for every manufacturer, then that would be more like a white label, but logoed for them. The reality is, though, these manufacturers are so unique that we're never rolling out the exact same thing to everybody. So it is kind of like a private labeled solution built on something that is replicable and you're still leveraging uh, development that's been created for many companies. Does that make sense? So usually what happens in private labeling is it is just a small little formula change, right? Again, if you think about merchandise, the manufacturer who manufactures that T-shirt, right? might manufacture hundreds of thousands of t-shirts a month, but one has Caterpillar branded on it. Another one has somebody else's. That formulation is just that different that you call it private label. If I'm just selling the t-shirt and I sell the t-shirt at Walmart, Kmart, uh, well, I don't even know if Kmart exists anymore, but you know, Target and all these other places, then it's just a t-shirt that's a white label at a different place, and, and it's going to have a very competitive price. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for that. So the only thing we can take right now is going to be super short closing advice. So Chris, what is going to be your closing advice? I like the idea of private labeling for different revenue streams that help me increase my brand presence. So that's where I would try to look for private labeling, drop shipping opportunities. Where can I have lower risk? but still have a higher, uh, a new revenue channel. Uh, that's what I like about this strategy. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much, Chris. Andrew, what would be your closing advice, please? I think I think it's a, a great way to expand with existing owned customers, folks that work with you. But certainly, if you've not done it before, seek advice from those who have, because there's great paths to success and there's also great paths to failure, uh, which are easier to find if you're not careful. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Noemi, what would be your closing advice, please? I'd like to make a plug for uh, new customers, right? Because bringing on new products is really exciting, but really having a very clear long-term brand strategy and customer acquisition model, especially when these costs are getting higher and higher, is really important. So, Love it. Thank you so much me. for that. Uh, Steve, what would be your closing advice, please? Um, don't get caught up in the uh, if we build it, they will come scenario. This isn't field of dreams. Actually have a vision and bring something uh, better into the world. Okay, love it. That's it for today, guys. If you joined for the first time, this was part of our e-commerce series for which uh, we meet every Wednesday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern. We always pick one topic related to e-commerce and always have uh, an expert panel that is willing to share their insights and wisdom. So make sure you are not going to be uh, going to miss next week's show. We are going to be on that note. Thanks, everybody, for your time and insights today. Thank you, Sam. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew's dog. I cannot thank our guests enough for coming on the show, for sharing their knowledge and journey. I always pick up learnings from our guests, and hopefully you learned something new today. If you want to learn more about Christina Harrington, head over to janalpha.com. It's G-E-N-A-L-P-H-A.com. If you want to learn more about Steve Rice, head over to .comjungle.com. It's D-O-T-C-O-M-J-U-N-G-L-E.com. If you want to learn more about Andrew Deutsch, head over to smartsoda.com. It's S-M-A-R-T-S-O-D-A.com. If you want to learn more about Noemi Kiss, head over to monitor.com. It's M-O-N-I-T-T-O-R.com. Links and more information will also be available in the show notes. 
If anything in this podcast resonated with you and your business, you might want to check other related episodes, including the interview with Hugo Funtis, who shares the nuances of inventory turnover and how that could help optimize the inventory and cash flow. Also, the interview with Ben Searcy, who shares his insights into the importance of customer advocacy and mass customer mobilization. Also, don't forget to subscribe and respect the word among folks with similar backgrounds. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please review and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform or DM me on any social channels. I'll try my best to respond personally and make sure you get help. Thank you and I hope to get you on the next episode of the WBS Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the WBS Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you never miss an episode. For more information on growth strategies for SMBs using ERP and digital transformation, check out our community at wbs.rocks. We'll see you next time.